if you will please take your Bible and turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, we are going to be examining just one verse this morning, and that is verse 7. While you're turning, let me say that, excuse me, it goes without saying that those we revere who are or are devoted to, those that we look up to, that we respect, if not for their particular expertise or experience, then for their constant upright character, uh, they have our complete trust. They have our complete trust. Someone says, I've never known Jim to lie, and I believe what he says now, even though the circumstances seem to indict him. Unflagging devotion like this to the word of a person of character is demonstrated perhaps most emphatically, I think, by young children. Young children that, that they uh, are limited in their knowledge of the, of the big world that they're in. They cling to their parents for dear life uh, when they're unsure about their surroundings. Like Johnny, who takes his father's hand and squeezes it tightly and is sure to follow him wherever he leads because he trusts him. His father tells Johnny not to be afraid of facing a particular new experience because while the situation might seem scary now, he promises Johnny that soon things will be even better than they were before. And then they'll celebrate with ice cream and spend some time at Smith's Farm watching animals. And that's all it takes for Johnny to relax and weather the storm of his, of his little world without complaining or being paralyzed by fear. He regards his father's promissory word of better things to come that he cannot see right now more important than the current situation that is clearly visible and tangible to him. And we're not surprised then that Jesus would call us to be like children with respect to our faith in our, father's, in our Heavenly Father's promissory word about better things to come. It makes sense, doesn't it? That faith produces a reverence, a devotion to God that is active. Now, it may sound too simple to be the key to a vibrant, courageous, and valiant Christian walk even to the warrior-like stance of the more-than-conqueror Christians that Paul identifies us as. But it is true. It is that simple, profound. But it's simple. And if that's not your experience, if instead a spirit of timidity perhaps has overruled you of late and douses that courageous zeal of faith that should be true of you in Christ then you will be susceptible to drifting from God's word and seeking solace in other places that make only empty promises and cannot deliver in the end. This was the problem behind the drifting of the Jewish Christians who received the letter to the Hebrews, as you know. And in Hebrews eleven seven, the writer uses Noah to rein them back to spiritual center. And it and it will have, I believe, the same effect on you as well if you're there, if you're in the drifting pattern. Noah was a man of God whose faith generated a reverence for God's promissory word, and it led him to live his life in accord with it. So let's have a look. I'm very eager to share this with you. We have lots to say, so 
we're going to jump right into this. We encounter the same formula, of course, by faith that the writer used with Abel and Enoch. He uses it now with Noah. And it's actually a constant refrain throughout this whole entire old, uh, chapter for Old Testament characters that the writer holds up as a model of what it means to live by biblical faith. By it, he means by instrument of the faith, like the faith is an instrument by which we do something, by means of the faith, through exercising this faith. That's the idea. And through exercising this faith, these Old Testament saints accomplish great things for God, and so can you. Noah is a sterling example. In Hebrews 11.7, it is, it, is, uh, it is complete, and we pull from it three important truths, the first of which goes like this. This is perhaps the central part of this whole passage or whole verse. Faith allows us to revere God and radically live out our salvation in light of his future promises. Faith allows us to revere God and radically live out our salvation in light of his future promises. And that's just in the first part of verse 7. By faith, Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household. Faith allows us to revere God and radically live out our salvation in light of his future promises. By biblical faith, Noah revered the Lord. He revered him. To revere means really to have a, a great respect for someone or something. But the Greek word behind this translation <clears throat> implies a bit more than mere respect. It actually carries the idea of submission and also fear. And when it comes to fearing God, the kind of fear that the Bible talks about that we should have toward God is, is less than terror, but it's more than just respect. So maybe I could, I could coin it this way. It is a reverential fear that we are to have. It's what, the biblical, it's what biblical faith produces, and it's what drives a believer to be careful to submit to the word of God. Now, do you have a reverential fear of God? Are you careful to submit to God's word unhesitatingly and unquestionably? It's what the writer wants his congregation to be characterized by, and he points to Noah as our model. Noah, by faith, revered God. And if you want to appreciate Noah's response to God, then you really need to understand the parenthetical phrase right at the beginning at verse 7. So we're told that by faith, comma, now comes the parenthetical thought, being warned by God about things not yet seen, comma, he revered. So that's the parenthetical thought. What is this all about? Well, to answer that, we have to go back to the flood narrative in Genesis where... <clears throat> It tells Noah, uh, or where God tells Noah, rather, how grieved he had become over, over the Im immoral and wicked condition of humanity. Maybe you remember reading the narrative. God warns Noah about future events to come, one of which is the extermination of humanity. Now, how do you wrap your, your mind around that? The extermination of hum humanity. No, I'm going to wipe them all out. Can you imagine how Noah must have thought? Certainly he was awestruck. And there are other aspects of this narrative that 
he had to find just as hard to wrap his mind around. A great flood, for example. A great flood. God explains that he would flood the entire earth and wash it clean of all the human filth and debauchery. That, too, was surely an awesome thought to Noah. A universal flood? Really? How about rain? I love this one. Rain is another aspect of of God's warning of unseen things. This is how God would bring the flood, by causing it to rain 40 days and 40 nights. Now, it's not the duration of the time that it would rain that Noah would have found unbelievable, but rather rain itself. The concept that water fell from the sky was most likely unknown at that time. Most likely. There's a debate about this, and I lean toward the most likely unknown at this time position. Genesis chapter 2, verses 5 and 6 says this. No shrub of the field was yet on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise up from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Very interesting. This mist kept whatever was in the garden well hydrated, mostly trees. So there was no need for rain. There was even a river that flowed through Eden that watered everything. God caused everything to grow. Again, no need for rain. Now some argue that verse 5 means that that there wasn't any rain only until Adam was created and then commissioned to care for the garden. But it's more likely that verse 5 was Moses' way of anticipating the fall, after which Adam would then have to work the ground by the sweat of his brow, and also anticipating the flood with the reference to rain. Now, why do I say this? Well, This is much like an editorial comment that Moses makes for his audience, who know what rain is. To support this is the fact that rain is not mentioned again in Genesis until the flood narrative. Not once. The point here is that Noah would not have been familiar with the concept of rain and may have even thought it strange that water could fall from the sky as strange as you and I might think that life could exist without rain. Someone might ask, if if this is so, then wouldn't we have expected the Lord to explain the concept of rain to Noah? Or he would have been maybe bewildered by this term. Well, we might also ask the same kind of question about the serpent in the garden that walked upright and spoke. Genesis 3 gives no hint at what Adam and Eve thought about that phenomenon. And Genesis 6 gives no hint at what Noah thought about rain either. And that's because in both examples, the text is not interested in answering those kinds of questions. Sorry. We simply believe that God filled Noah in when it came to what rain was. Either way, rain was most likely part of the things not yet seen, along with wiping out the human race with a universal flood. Oh, it gets better. Another aspect in this category is the ark itself that Noah would build, the ark itself. Now, boat building was well known even in Noah's day. The Egyptians were master shipbuilders. So were the inhabitants of Byblos on the uh, Syrian coast, which later became um, the, uh, the Phoenician outpost. 
But Noah was not a shipbuilder, not a shipwright, as they call them. He was a farmer, skilled with axes and sickles and pitchforks. He was expert in making straight garden furrows with hoes and rakes. But crafting ships, well, that was out of his sphere of expertise, above his pay grade, we might say. Not only that, but this boat was of immense size. Even by our own standards, it would be 510 feet long, 85 feet high, and 51 feet uh, wide. Now, just to put that into perspective for you, we're talking about a boat that was one and a half times the length of an American football field and more than four stories high. It had three decks, so it provided a total deck area of 96,000 square feet. Maybe Noah could have thrown together a flotation device, a raft perhaps if he had to, but a ship of that size? He had never heard of such a vessel, much less seen one. Now, if destroying the human race, starting over with a new Adam, that's Noah, a universal flood brought on by water falling from the sky and a huge boat were not enough for Noah to grasp, here's something else. The boat would house all species of animals, birds and insects, both male and female. Oh, yeah. How would he ever pull that one off? The animal kingdom was also fallen at this time, remember. They surely wouldn't have come on their own free will. And even if Noah could get them on, housing predators and prey together wouldn't work. Someone's going to get eaten. One last aspect that I think, to br- I, I think I need to bring up about this whole episode is that Noah was building his boat, uh, and as he was, he was also preaching repentance to his immoral generation, preaching repentance. Now, the writer of Hebrews says nothing about this specifically, only that Noah convicted the world. Uh, now, that comment means more than just preaching, and we'll see that in just a moment. But Peter, the apostle Peter, does say in his second epistle, that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Here's how it goes, 2 Peter 2.5. And he did not spare the ancient world, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Now, with this in mind, here's what we can deduce from the context of the flood narrative in Genesis 6 through 9. First, that Noah was a blameless and righteous man, And he found favor with God, and that implies that he would then had to have proclaimed the gospel to his generation for the first 580 years of his life. He would had to have if he was a godly man. That's what godly people do. Second, and in keeping with Noah's character, he would have continued to do so with greater zeal during the 120-year time limit that God gave until the flood. Third, the gracious character of God would have called for preaching during this time as well. God purposely gave 120 years, not just for Noah to build his ark, but to extend his grace to the world in calling them to repentance. He was patient, you see, for 120 years with humanity and gave them ample warning to believe the gospel. Now, how would all of this have sounded to Noah's godless generation? I wonder about that. I thought long and hard about that. It would have sounded completely ridiculous, I'm sure, as ridiculous as the gospel message sounds to our godless generation in America when they hear it. 
You can imagine the response Noah must have received, right? Let me get this straight, Noah. You're a mere farmer who has no experience as a carpenter, much less as a shipwright, and are planning to build a huge boat on dry land miles away from any body of water, no less, that will house the male and female species of every living thing because God is going to send water from the sky. 40 days and 40 nights that will flood the entire earth and wipe out all of us and all because we don't share your faith. Do I have that right? And that's, that's, a, that's a tame response, I can assure you. We can assume that some were even hostile to Noah. Remember, the humanity had reached such a point in its wickedness that God had decided to wipe it out. Responses were probably never that tame for Noah. What I find to be the most astounding about the flood narrative, the most astounding, though, more than any of these aspects that God warned Noah of, the universal extermination, universal flood, water from the sky, a big boat, a floating wildlife center, is the summary statement in Genesis 6.22. Here's how it goes. So Noah did these things according to everything that God had commanded him, so he did. That's it. That's all it says. The brevity of that statement speaks volumes to us of Noah's unquestioning loyalty that he had toward God and an absolute trust that all in all of these things, most of which he had never heard of before and others of them seemed quite impossible to imagine. But he didn't question. Oh, no. Yes, Lord. And he did. And repeating them to his wicked generation as the context for repenting and trusting God must have made Noah sound crazy to them. But no matter how crazy, how ridiculous, how time-consuming, how fantastic it all sounded, Noah obeyed the Lord without hesitation and without question. And he stayed the course, even though he had not one convert to his name before the end came. This reverence for God's word about the future, that is a byproduct of biblical faith. So let's talk about this kind of faith that reveres God. It was lacking among the Jewish Christians of the first century Palestine. It's sorely lacking today in the body of Christ at large in 21st century America. We cannot help but be confronted with the hard question then at this point, all of us. Do I revere the Lord by faith like this? like Noah did? Can I insert my name in Genesis 6.22 and say that I do according to everything that Lord has commanded me in, in a particular context because my life is characterized by reverential fear for the Lord as Noah's was for 580 years and longer? I say characterized because even Noah was a sinner. We know that. He sinned. His reputation as a blameless man surely means that he was characteristically obedient and quick to repent of any sin in his life. Now, if you can say, well, well, in, in all honesty, I, I believe that's true of me as well. A and you're not prideful, but you're giving an honest assessment of your life. 
if that's the case, then you are doing only a third as good as Noah. That's right. What do I mean by that? Well, Moses tells us that Noah walked with God for 580 years before he started the construction of the ark. And we know from our last study what it means to walk with God. Noah was characteristically obedient to God's word, 580 years. But the ark building episode in Genesis 6 is a new context in which Noah obeyed God. New. It was more challenging. It incurred severe ridicule and persecution. Noah's boat building and his preaching were two activities that no doubt brought stiff persecution from a generation that was so wicked that God was going to cancel it. So maybe a better question to ask ourselves is this. Do I want God... Do I want God's commands, uh, commands that he gives to me, or do I, do I do, rather, God's commands characteristically, even in difficult situations, when his word commands me to do things that are, are sure to incur persecution and ridicule, ridicule and derision and make matters worse for me? It's one thing to obey the Lord when all is going well, but do I obey the Lord and his commands when I'm sure that it's going to incur, incur persecution and ridicule and derision, when it's going to make matters absolutely worse for me, not better. We're in a time, as I have been saying since our study of the book of Genesis, and as Michael mentioned earlier this morning, that is characterized by apostasy and compromise. We're seeing more Christian leaders fall away from the faith and many others who are lacking discernment, and they're turning from the faith to something that is secular. We live in a time that is certainly one of the most difficult to be a Christian. The society has been artificially charged up to believe in systemic racism, white supremacy, that all white people are inherently racist, critical race theory. And the church across the nation, many of them, have bought into all of this poisonous stuff. Those that haven't, have been targeted. Churches, churchgoers get shot and church buildings get burned. And godly pastors harassed by the government. We know one in particular who stood the course, right? Praise the Lord for John MacArthur. So how have you been faring with all of this in your own life, in your own business, in your own social circles? Are you afraid to give the gospel for fear of people canceling you? or because someone would consider it a hate crime, or maybe to maintain a biblical work ethic at your job for fear of losing it, or to raise your children and minister to your grandchildren the way God wants you to, regardless of the pushback from unsaved friends and family. Are you caving into the pressure from the world to forsake a lifestyle that God outlines for you, which the world finds strange and outdated and backward and offensive? Sadly, many have. But let me say this. If you've been staying the course on this level, praise the Lord, you're doing about two-thirds then as good as Noah. (laughs) You say, wait a minute. You've already told me that if obedience to God characterizes my life when when all is quiet, I'm doing only a third as good as Noah. And if obedience to God characterizes my life in extremely difficult situations, 
when I'm sure to bring ridicule and derision into it, I am still doing only two-thirds as good as Noah? Yes, that's right. So how does that work? How can, how can I be as good as Noah in living by faith? Well, you can be, if you were motivated by faith, to revere the Lord's word about what he promises you and live for those promises exclusively in this perverse generation. You see, it was during Noah's 120-year shipbuilding period that he was motivated to obey the Lord, even through times of terrible persecution by his perverse generation, because of God's promise of things not seen. Things not seen. He was motivated by God's promises of things not seen more than he was motivated by things that he saw. In the New Testament language or lingo, we call this living by faith, not by sight. Noah believed God's word about future events that seemed illogical, irrational, and unfounded by everything that Noah knew and to be reality in his life. He took God at his word about water falling from the sky, universal flood, extermination of humanity, an ark that could protect them and animals from harm, even though his experience and knowledge about what is reality would never have accepted that. Noah embraced the promises of God about what was to come, and against all common sense, he obeyed the Lord. So maybe the best question to ask ourselves at this point is this. Is it true of me that I obey God's commands characteristically in situations where to do so would make little to no sense to me, that would go against all human logic and reason, and that even the odds would seem to defy because of what he promises? Said another way, does my faith cause me to revere God and radically live out my salvation in light of his future promises? This is exactly what the Apostle Paul means when he urges the Philippians to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What we would do, what we would do for our great God and for the inheritance that he has prepared for us. His, this faith that we live a biblical faith gifted to us by God that promotes true worship is sure to please God, we see now, reveres him, not only honors God for Noah so lived out reverence for God, but he does, it is designed by God also to promote his agenda, this kind of faith that reveres, one of which is to bring conviction upon the world. And that brings me to the second important truth, which is really a byproduct of the first. Living by this kind of faith that reveres God in this way, by trusting his promises that we cannot see in light of the things that we can, will at the same time convict the world. Living by this faith that reveres God in this way, at the same time convicts the world. Verse 
7 in the very middle of the verse, by which he condemned the world, speaking of, of Noah. Now, we've already noted that Noah was a preacher of sorts and assumed that he preached repentance for a 120-year period. That's the period it took to build the ark. But we shouldn't limit this short phrase to Noah's preaching and evangelizing to his, uh, of his generation. That would certainly be part of it, and an important part, since no one is saved, of course, apart from hearing the, the gospel preached. But what else is there, you might be wondering? Well, there is the silent testimony of his life and his work. His life and his work. According to Genesis 6, Noah, Noah was a blameless man who found favor with God. So he walked with God for the first 580 years of his life. And before God ever commissioned him to build the ark, he was a blameless man. He walked with God. Moses deliberately contrasts the wickedness of the world with Noah's reputation before the Lord. Genesis 6, 8. But Noah, on the other hand, found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, we, we have to wonder how life was for Noah the first 580 years. Because the scripture tells us nothing about this. So we shouldn't hesitate, of course, to speculate. That could be dangerous. But we are aware, aren't we, of Jesus' commendation in Matthew 5.11? The commendation he gives. Blessed are you when people in, insult you, persecute you, and even falsely slay, say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, this declaration is absolute, so it applies to all believers in all ages, present, future, and past. In fact, Jesus' references, reference back to Old Testament prophets here actually confirms this, and we must include Noah in the prophets. Now, I know he neither wrote a prophetic book nor was he sought out for prophetic oracles, so far as we know, but he carried on like a prophet. He proclaimed God's word, which is the majority, or the major component, rather, of Old Testament prophets, calling his generation to repent. Why? Because God was going to come and judge them with a flood and wipe them out. That was a prophecy. And in this case, he could be specific. He could say, look, in 120 years from now, God is going to judge the earth with a flood. So repent and trust him now. And that was his message all throughout. Noah continued to bring this prophetic warning as the time grew closer and closer to this cataclysmic event. We, we must believe then on the basis of what Jesus says in Matthew 5.11 that Noah received persecution for his preaching. He had to have. But as we as we as we say now, not just for his preaching, but also for the way he lived his life, which, which got more, which was, was um, receiving just as much persecution uh, as his message. If the world was morally as bad as Moses makes it out to be in Genesis 6, Noah must have stuck out like a sore thumb, right? He had to have. They went in one direction, he went in another. They were in a godly, immoral, pagan direction. He was in a godly, moral, righteous direction. And I would suggest to you that just being in the presence of Noah would have been convicting for anyone who was not a true worshiper of God at the time. The main word that Moses uses to describe Noah is righteous. The Hebrew term is a technical one in the Torah. 
describes a covenant relationship with God and, and, a prop, and the proper conduct that God calls within that covenant relationship as well. So Noah was conforming to the requirements of a covenant relationship that he had with God. Moses emphasizes this covenant relationship and intimate walk with God in verse 9 by repeating it three times, each time in different words. Noah was a righteous man. Noah was blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. That's the emphasis. Alan Ross, noted Old Testament scholar, explains in his commentary on Genesis that moral de- the moral decay and chaos that characterized humanity at this time was as bad as it gets. Quote, the corruption of the earth is reported in two stages. Verse 11 states that the earth was corrupt and full of violence, and then verse 12 records that God saw the earth, that it was corrupt. And if this report were not enough, a causal clause is added to explain that all flesh had corrupted itself. Three times in these two verses, the term corrupt is used. This word, as well as violence, gives a graphic description of human nature at its worst. By this time in human history, it was as bad as it had ever been. We have every reason to believe that Noah's silent side convicted the world just as much as his preaching had. It had to. Just by living a righteous life in front of wicked people would convict them. I think it's telling that our culture, or in our culture, everyone is encouraged to live a life according to his and her own standards and beliefs, right? You know that. That's what a postmodern society is all about. They're encouraged to live by their own standards and belief systems as long as it's not Christianity. Why is that? Well, we know, of course, that Christianity would never condone or respect a pagan belief system, certainly not treated as equally valid, which is what tolerate means today. That we understand. But why would the world not tolerate Christianity in the sense of of treating it as equally valid. It's because a true and devout Christian lifestyle, by nature, inflicts a certain amount of conviction on anyone who is not a biblical Christian. That's just the way it is. And maybe you've experienced that. I'm sure you have. Whether we're talking about a philosophy of life that leads to a thoroughly pagan and immoral lifestyle or a traditional religion that even uses the Bible as part of its belief system, it makes no difference. Ultimately, people will be uncomfortable around biblical Christians feeling in some way guilty of offending a holy God. A godless person, you see, is not going to be convicted about his actions by another godless person, is he? Rather, the two complement each other. Their lifestyles cheer each other on. One person says to another person, I have, an open relation, I have open relationships with women, and, uh, and I live with, with several of them at once. The other person replies, yeah, I tried that, but it didn't work for me. My intimate relationships are with other men. The two have a beer together, toast to each other's life. But as soon as one of them talks to a devout follower of Christ, it's a different story altogether, isn't it? People are uneasy with the idea of submitting to the lordship of Christ. 
of denying self to please Christ, of thinking of, of, of the interest of others as more important than yourself, that is just not going to fly. It isn't. This is the reason Jesus cautioned his followers, and it's a caution that still rings out today. Woe to you when all the people speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets the same way. Beloved, be kind. Be gracious, be tactful, be merciful and meek, but live God's truth. Live God's truth. Live Christ to the world. And when people speak falsely about you and say all kinds of evil against you because of Christ, rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven, which you cannot, cannot see yet, is great. What else about God's agenda is biblical faith designed to do? Well, it not only convicts the world, but finally it brings, it brings us confirmation that we are heirs of God's righteousness. It brings us confirmation. Living by faith that reveres God in this way, it confirms that we are his heirs of righteousness. Biblical faith confirms that we are heirs of righteousness. It says, the last part of verse 7, and became an heir of righteousness, which is according to faith. Noah is the first man in scripture to be called righteous. I don't know if you knew that. That's astounding. Genesis 7.1 says that he was the only one out of this entire generation that enjoyed this status before God. Then the Lord said to Noah, enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this generation. Can you imagine that? What does it mean to become an heir of righteousness, which is according to faith? Now, that seems to be an important question since it, was, since it saved Noah from the same fate as his generation. We ought to answer it. Righteousness carries with it the idea of justice, uprightness. It's a condition that is in accord with God's standards for acceptable behavior. In the New Testament, the important thing is that God considers a person morally, spiritually, and legally upright and acceptable. This word is really a technical term to talk about being right with God. Now more than this, closely related to righteousness that God counts, is the fact that none of us can ever attain that acceptable status before God on uh, his or her own. Not one. Sinners are not righteous. They cannot become righteous by anything that they do, nor can they ever have a righteousness of their own. Never. How then can one be righteous before God, in God's eyes, by God's standards? Well, the New Testament teaches that one must be declared righteous by God. In other words, only God can give you a righteous standing before him. So we might refine our understanding of righteousness. It's, as one Greek lexicon defines it, that divine arrangement by God, which God leads us to a state acceptable to him. He does this, of course, through his son, Jesus Christ, who is the only person in all of humanity that was truly and inherently righteous before God, the only one. Paul would declare in Romans 10, 4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You want to be righteous before God? You need to trust the work of Christ alone. And then God declares you righteous. 
Just to sum this up, no one is righteous, not one, and no one can ever become righteous by his own doing before God. God has to declare you righteous, and he does that by taking the righteousness of Christ and putting it to your account the moment you put your faith in the work of Christ alone. When God looks at Christians, no matter who they are, where they come from, regardless of their maturity level, he always sees Christ. Always. We come to God and we're accepted by him solely on the merits of Christ alone. And when that happens at salvation, we instantly become heirs of this righteousness, of this salvation. Our faith in what Jesus has done ushers us into a a state of righteousness. We inherit it by faith. God imputes it to our account when we exercise faith in the Son. Okay, I understand that. But Noah lived before Christ. He lived before Christ. So how could God consider him to be an heir of righteousness that comes by faith and only or only in the Son. Well, the Messiah is no less real to those who lived before he came than he is to those of us who live after he came. In other words, it makes no difference in terms of salvation as to which side on the cross you were born. The Old Testament saints knew the gospel, make no mistake. They understood that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, and that through Messiah's work, he would secure an acceptable position for them before God. It is, so, is it so hard to believe that after God explained to Adam and Eve that the son would someday put an end to Satan's power and save a people for himself, that they then would, would be careful to catechize Cain and Abel, and then Seth, who represented the godly line, and then Seth would catechize his children and grandchildren, and so would would they, theirs, and so on for generation after generation. It's not hard to believe that, right? Just because Moses doesn't mention Messiah with regard to Noah doesn't mean that Noah didn't look for his coming and his work. The thrust of Hebrews 11 really is to live by faith in the promises of God that would ultimately be realized in the coming of Messiah. Both comings. That means that every Old Testament saint mentioned in this chapter believed in this. Every one of them. In fact, the writer mentions it specifically with regard to Moses. Look quickly down if you're in Hebrews 11 to verses 25 and 26. He says of Moses that consider the reproach of, he considered the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Moses considered Christ, and the reward that came with being associated with Christ more important, more appealing. And he desired that more than the treasures of Egypt. Still find it hard to believe that Old Testament saints were looking for Messiah? Beloved, there has, there has ever been only one way to be declared righteous by God, and that is through faith in Messiah. It was true of Noah, Moses, Abraham, and all of the Old Testament saints, and it, and it is true of us as well. Now, this is such a timely message that the writer brings up to his compromised congregation. A great many of them were drifting away from the Orthodox Christian position and some even on the verge of apostatizing. They were not looking ahead to the better future that God promised in Christ, their great inheritance. Rather, they were looking back 
to what was familiar to them, Judaism, and trying to incorporate as much of it as they could into Christianity and avoid persecution from, uh, from their family and friends because of leaving Judaism. These Jewish Christians were not mature, they were not trained in doctrine, they were most likely unaware of their drifting as well, unaware that they were trying to, to do the impossible since the Old Covenant was, was meant to usher in and give way to the New Testament. <clears throat> they were stretching back and taking solace in the shadows. And the interesting thing is that Noah himself, as we and we can say the same for all the Old Testament champions of faith, always lived in anticipation of Messiah and his work and what their, and, and what their inheritance was in him. He would not have even seen eye to eye with these Jewish Christians at all. <clears throat> Christians today need to be reminded that they are heirs of righteousness. That means that they... Not only were given salvation, but their salvation will dead end someday into glory, where they will experience full and complete redemption, including the redemption of their bodies, where we will be with the Lord forevermore. And this is God's promise to us. And we must, by faith, revere these unseen things that God promises us more than the things we see today. That means live in light of them, knowing that that you will inherit them. Live as though God's promises of a better country are as good as done, because they are. And in this way, you can find the assurance you need that you are indeed an heir of righteousness. And let me tell you that that assurance is a precious thing to those of us who live by faith in a godless, Christless pagan society. We need all the assurance we can get. In conclusion, I want to say that we have argued that faith allows us to revere God and radically live out our salvation in light of future promises, which at the same time convicts the world and confirms to us that we are genuine heirs of righteousness. Now, this boils down to what, to what you revere most. That's really what it boils down to. That's the key here. Who do you love more? Who do you revere more? Who do you regard more? Is it God's word and, and promissory word of, of a better country and the return of Messiah and full redemption? Or is it something now that's temporal and earthly that seems to have a hold on us? What do you revere most? This is always the way the New Testament writers put our faith when it comes to fighting and living for Christ. For the unbeliever, there is Matthew 10, 28. Jesus said, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body but, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. In other words, and this is part of the gospel, you need to regard more, a God more. You need to fear him more than anything on this earth. And for believers in our sanctification, I think of passages like 1 Corinthians 6.3, do you not know that we will judge angels how much more the matters of this life? That was in a context where Christians were suing each other, do you remember? Dragging all their dirty laundry before the courts. Paul says, wait a second, you're going to be judging angels someday. How much, how much more equipped are you to judge spiritual things now than 
than the secular courts. Oh, much more. 2 Corinthians 4.17, Paul says, our, moment, our momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison while we look not at the things which are seen but the things which are not seen for the things which are seen are temporal but the things which are not seen are eternal far beyond all comparison the things that we endure now fail in comparison to what we will enjoy in glory do you believe that Romans 8:18 8, Paul says for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. You think that way? Do you talk to yourself that way? You should. Are you getting the impression that our faith gives us the truest perspective on life? Which is, which is to, to bide your time in righteousness, carry out God's God-given responsibilities, stay the course, because in the end, what awaits is glorious beyond compare and worth any amount of suffering we might ever endure for Christ. I close with the words of Jeremiah 29, 11. The Lord speaking. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for prosperity and not disaster. To give you a future and a hope.